Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you have not taken the opportunity to give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to this, we'd really appreciate if you could do that to help us out and to help other people find the show. I want to thank those who helped produce this show, putting in lots of hours behind the scenes. Special thanks to Mim Ward on creative design. And here's the rest of the team. I'm James Steinbach, web development. Rebecca Turkey, media and marketing. I'm Ed Hackey, and I produce the show. Okay, today we have as our special guest, Dr. Matthew Tietzen, and we're going to be talking about his book, Jesus and the Forces of Death. And I really encourage you to read this book, and I found it very interesting, provocative, and helpful. So I hope you do as well. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back, everybody. Our guest today is Dr. Matthew Thiessen, who is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at McMaster University in Ontario. He's the author of Contesting Conversion, Paul and the Gentile Problem, and the book we're discussing today, Jesus and the Forces of Death, the Gospel's Portrayal of Ritual Impurity Within First Century Judaism, published by Baker Academic this year, well, last year, 2020. Uh, Matt, welcome to OnScript. Thanks for having me. Now, we were, uh, we were supposed to have Matt Bates uh, on this interview as well, but supposedly he had to go get a COVID vaccine. Uh, I'm, I'm suspicious of like, you know, why is Matt getting a COVID vaccine already when, you know, lots of elderly haven't been vaccinated, but we'll leave that aside. Um, but, uh, you know, we would have been three Matts in this interview. So since he's not here, let me just start out by asking you um, if you want to share anything that annoys you about Matt Bates. <laughs> How much time do I have to talk here? Uh, you, well, we could give it a half an hour. Okay. Well, I would start uh, with the fact that he's written a lot of books. He's, he's highly productive, too productive, I might mm-hmm. argue. Mm. So I think that's maybe the, the thing that annoys me the most about Matt Bates. Yeah. And his, um, his faith as allegiance uh, thesis, do you think he's just kind of pushing that provocative angle to sell books? Like, what do you think's behind that? I don't think he believes that at all. I think he really is just trying to maximize profits. Um, so, yeah, I mean, do? I mean, two books revolving around that theme makes you wonder, um, you know, <laughs> why one wasn't enough. That's right. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's not here to defend himself, but I, I, I do feel like it's it's uh, important to um, to bring these criticisms uh, to the table here at the beginning. People need to know. They do. They do. So you situate your work, Jesus and the Forces of Death, within ongoing trends within Christianity to put put some distance between Jesus and Judaism. And, and you note in the intro a range of ways this happens. You, you have one extreme example, I, I'm going to get this name wrong, but Notger uh, Schlenska at Berlin, who who even, systematic theologian, who even argues that maybe the Old Testament should have a kind of secondary status like the Apocrypha. And then you have at the other end, uh, you mention N.T. Wright, who, who describes a very Jewish Jesus who was nevertheless opposed to some high-profile features of first-century Judaism. So, what's the range, like, maybe just talk a little bit about the range of ways that 
uh, people either overtly or subtly put distance between Jesus and Judaism? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is a really hard question to answer because there is a broad diversity of ways one can do it. And of course, Christians have been doing this, uh, well, basically from the beginning and in different ways. And of course, you know, the name Marcion often comes up and uh, accusations that someone's a modern day Marcionite are often leveled at people. But, uh, you know, there could be obvious ways like people who, you know, just ignore uh, what Christians call the Old Testament altogether, or a little more more insidious and subtle ways of, well, A, focusing on only aspects of, of the Old Testament, or talking about the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God, um, and, and sort of, you know, Jesus is this loving, sweet, kind, gentle depiction of God, as opposed to the Old Testament God. And then, of course, just reading the, the gospel stories and the gospels, as uh, Jesus sort of founding his own his own new religion, a religion of grace as opposed to works, a religion that makes sense to us as opposed to texts, well, like Leviticus, that frequently don't make sense to us. So I think there's just a, a very broad range of ways, uh, sort of strategies, uh, implicit, explicit, that we often use to navigate Texts that are foreign often and, and difficult to under, understand. Yeah, and I think some of it too is uh, you know comes out in the criticisms we use, like to call someone a Pharisee is not ex- not exactly a compliment <laughs> within Protestantism. Yeah, there's that. Uh, I didn't actually know this song growing up, but a, a very good friend of mine taught it to me when I was in my early twenties. Do you want to be a fair Pharisee? They're not fair, you see. Do you know this? Oh, I don't know if no, anybody knows I've this never, song. I did not. Grow I don't up want to this. be a Pharisee because they're not fair, you see. And then it's sad, you see, because they're sad because they don't see. believe in the resurrection. Yes. They're sad, you see. Ah. Uh, I just want to be a sheep. Um, so this sort of negative depiction of well, the two Jewish groups we know from Jesus's day, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, and like you say, just the sort of very casual use. I see it on social media all the time. They don't throw uh, the therapeutic uh, in there? No, they very infrequently, or the yes scenes don't get mentioned uh, in the song. So, <laughs> And I think your, your book then comes into the, um, the subject of purity, which is another one that has a, an almost inherently bad name. Because when I mean, you think about the, the criticism that, for instance, evangelicalism creates a purity culture, when, like when you attach purity to something, then that's kind of the criticism the beginning and the end of the criticism, right? Yeah. It, I mean, this the, this uh, particular example you're raising, I think more is more prevalent amongst more sort of, quote unquote, progressive Christians, seeing conservatives, evangelicals as obsessed with purity, and this is a bad thing. And, and uh, to be sure the way it can be deployed, especially along gender lines, can be very negative. But is that really what's going on in Leviticus? And what does purity signify uh, there, what does holiness signify? There is, I think, really important to ask. Yeah, so this factors into our portrayal of Jesus as uh, a pop at a popular level, one who was leveling a pretty thoroughgoing critique of the purity system, and and you have that comment in Mark that you know, thus he declared all foods clean, and it seems like that might typify his mission in general, that he is getting rid of the purity system or at least downplaying its importance. And, and you want to say something quite different. So what, what is the driving argument of your book? Really, it, it, it starts from the first story about 
about purity, ritual purity in, in Mark's gospel, where a man with lepra is the Greek word. It often gets translated as leprosy, and that's unfortunate and incorrect. But the man comes to Jesus and says, if you desire, if you want, you can make me clean or you can purify me. And Jesus doesn't say, who cares about impurity, impurity? You're accepted just as you are. Uh, he does something very different. He says, actually, I do desire to purify you. Be pure, be clean. And so the story very clearly signifies Jesus's interest in purity, ritual purity, and in his ability, which the man doesn't question, uh, which is fascinating, Jesus's ability to actually make someone clean. He has the power. The question is, does he want to use it? And Jesus's answer is, yeah, I sure do. Um, and now I'm going to. And so, uh, and you see this repeatedly through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this Jesus who seems to care, believe that ritual purity, impurity exists, and cares about removing these impurities from people who suffer from them or endure them. And, and there's a detail in that story where, um, you know, I was always taught that the fact that Jesus touched this guy would have been shocking in the first century. So he touches uh, a man with lepra. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a skin whatever problem of some sort that would render him ritually impure, but not like arms and fingers falling off, not leprosy. But so um, what do you make of the fact that he touches this man? Is that significant in the story? Is it revolutionary? How do you, how do you understand that? Nowhere. So this is one of the really, I think, really important things that I've learned from, from uh, Hebrew Bible scholars and then early Judaism scholars. It's not generally perceived to be sinful. Uh, Sorry, it's generally not perceived to be sinful to have a ritual impurity or to become ritually impure. And this is something that often is mistaken. Uh, Among scholars, clergy, lay people, lay readers, uh, it's not a sin. And so even assuming Jesus uh, became ritually impure by contact with this man who has lepra, which the text doesn't say, and I think there may be good reasons to think Jesus doesn't become ritually impure, it's not sinful. It just means he has to now be very careful what he does with this ritual impurity. So contact with ritually impure people is not a sin. In fact, sometimes it's a requirement. Uh, when someone dies, they become ritually impure. Their corpse is ritually impure. But it is a legal requirement and a deed of compassion to then tend to that body and prepare it for burial. And so uh, you inevitably, inevitably would become impure doing that, but that wasn't a sin. It was a good deed. And you just had to make sure you didn't go to the wrong place, the temple, uh, with with that ritual impurity still lingering on your body. So touch doesn't signify anything, in other words, about disdain or disregard for, for uh, the laws of ritual impurity. So people, people aren't there gasping when Jesus touches this man necessarily, right? It doesn't seem that way. Uh, you know, the, the text obviously doesn't say, but we have lots of reason to believe they, they would have not been particularly shocked. What they would have been shocked by, I mean, the rules of ritual impurity, when you read them in Leviticus or Numbers, uh, the impurity is contagious, ritual impurity. And so when you touch somebody who's ritually impure, generally you become ritually impure. Uh, it's contagious outwards. What seems to happen with the gospel stories is remarkable in that Jesus doesn't become ritually impure. Whatever power he has sort of shoots into them 
and then removes, cleanses the state that they're in. And so it's uh, not entirely new, but it is quite rare uh, to have such stories. And the Gospels, of course, tell these stories. Yeah, and we can touch on some of the Old Testament antecedents to that. But I, I wonder if, um, if if you could just step back for a moment and talk about the the purity system uh, in as it's presented in the Hebrew Bible. For some people, they're just not going to be familiar with some of the operative categories for understanding that. Yep. There are sort of a few different components that I think are really important to talk about. One, uh, the word impurity gets used for a number of different things, and it's really important to keep distinct ritual impurity, which I'll talk about in a second, from moral impurity, sin. It's the same word, but clearly two different sort of concepts, not entirely disconnected, but, but distinct, I think. So there is time when impurity is sinful, but that is a deed, an action. Um, it's an impurity that arises from an action. It's not contagious physically, um, and uh, it's avoidable. You don't need to sin. Uh, you choose to sin. Ritual impurity arises from a physical source. It's not sinful, and it's essentially unavoidable. If you're human, you're going to become ritually impure. The three sources, physical sources of ritual impurity, are sort of three categories. Corpses, which I've already mentioned, which we hear about in Numbers 19. Uh, lepra, which we talked about briefly, which we hear the skin condition, that or a set of skin conditions that we hear about in Leviticus 13 and 14. And then finally, uh, the third category is genital discharges of blood and semen. So those are the only ways you become ritually impure through these three physical sources, not sinful, inevitable, um, and can be washed away relatively easily. Usually it's a bit of time and uh, a little bit of water and you're back in a state of purity. If you're ritually impure, you do not go to the tabernacle or the temple precincts. You don't take part in the foods uh, eaten there. You steer clear of holy space. And as long as you do that, you're fine. So, um, yeah, I think that's yeah. a start, and, at least, on the system. Right. And then um, how, do, how do sacrifices factor into that? Because, the, you know, Jesus tells us, man, go offer the required offering. Yeah, uh, that's a fascinating aspect to the story. Uh, Jesus actually commands him to go do these sacrifices now. So, I'll talk about lepra specifically, because that's the, the example in Leviticus 13 and 14, it talks about how the priest determines you have this condition. And then Leviticus 14 starts with what to do when the lepra leaves your body. There's actually no process about if you have lepra, do these six steps and it'll go away. We get a story that happens with Naaman, but it's rare. It's a one-off. Uh, you don't. People weren't bathing in the Jordan seven times and then having lepra disappear. This is a skin condition that went away or didn't all on its own. The priest couldn't do anything about it. Once it's gone, there's a series of steps one has to undergo, including offering sacrifices so that you can access the blood of an animal, which basically, as Jacob Milgram has talked about this, this is a ritual detergent. And it washes, it scrubs out the impurities, the lingering impurities that remain after the condition is gone. And so, what Milgram argues is you have impurity on one side, and it's an active force. Uh, and on the other side, you have holiness, which is also an active force. And the blood 
of a sacrificed animal becomes quite holy and a, a powerful source of that cancels out the ritual impurity um, that one has by a corpses or whatever. Great. So, so it's like the final step in the cleansing process is, is the sacrifice. And, and this is where some of the confusion comes up sometimes because that gets translated in the Old Testament as a sin offering, chatat, but it, it's, uh, it's more like a cleansing offering. Um, and we read sin, and so we think that, I mean, this, this leads to misunderstandings of what the sacrificial system is in general. <laughs> but, yeah. 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 So, so you mentioned that, um, this is something I've always wondered about, like the process by which their skin disease is dealt with is not clear in the text. It's it's what they, where the laws come in are at the process of dealing with the effects of the skin disease, let's say lepra or genital discharge. So do you think there's an implicit sense that only God handles that? Like the only God's the actual, the one who actually gets rid of the, the source of the impurity and that that's implicit in the system or is it just not mentioned? This is a, that's a great question. It seems to me like Leviticus is, is really concerned about this is just the state of affairs. This is what we have. And this is how we manage. This is how we cope. At least in Leviticus and Numbers, you don't get any real reflection on how do we get rid of these things? Uh, can we get rid of these things? I guess in numbers you do. Miriam contracts lepra because she criticizes Moses. So it's actually a divine punishment there. And Aaron's the priest and he looks at Miriam and he's like, oh boy, she's got lepra. He doesn't do anything except he appeals to Moses and, and says, Moses, pray that this goes away. And so, yeah, it's it's uh, a divinely uh, removed condition Uh is what we see, at least in a couple of texts. It's not something that humans can actually get rid of. Corpses, you can't really take, bring corpses back to life. There are a couple of examples. Of course, it's God who's doing it. So those impurities have to be overcome by God. Otherwise, you know, sort of mundane existence is just marked by these things being there. And all it is is responding to their existence, not trying to change the state of, of affairs. And, and you argue in your book that the purity system is actually a compassionate system. Now, that's that's probably going to be striking for some listeners, the idea, you know, you don't associate this purity system. It seems like a burden, seems like an extra set of laws and rules that you have to keep. Like, why do you characterize that as a compassionate system? Yeah, part of that's uh, definitely polemical. Uh, I probably wouldn't have worded it that way. Not that I disagree with that, but I probably wouldn't have worded it that way, except I really wanted to push back against this idea of this is a cold, hard, you know, nasty system. Israel viewed its God as loving, compassionate, gracious, and all these wonderful things that we hear about also in the New Testament frequently. And I would say also like the New Testament also perceived this God to be dangerous, uh, risky. This is the supreme God who is a powerful God and is also, to put it uh, sort of bluntly, a little bit fussy and needs to be approached carefully, kind of like electricity. Super good. I'm glad we have electricity so we can do this. But I also don't grab the power line that's just outside of my house because I know it has to be approached with care. And frankly, I'm not careful enough around it. So that's just like God. 
God is fussy and wants to live with humans. The whole system is whole, is built on this idea that God wants to reside in proximity to humans. But humans are so messy that God has to set up sort of ground rules to make this living situation work. And the purity system, the whole tabernacle temple complex is setting up those ground rules so that they can live together rather harmoniously. If you go into the temple in the wrong way, it's bad or tabernacle the wrong way. It's bad because it's like grabbing on to the electrical wires and God and Israel's priests are trying to keep that from happening. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so um, what, what Jesus is doing in your argument then is helping people deal with the issues that might cause them to uh, otherwise get electrocuted. Yeah. Uh, so what we see in the gospels is, is this touches on a few of the questions you just asked is, uh, instead of this defensive response to the existence of impurities and just sort of managing them, we get in the Gospels this idea that, that Jesus is uh, Israel's, or Israel's God's response and uh, movement now to change the state of, of affairs by actually removing sources of impurity uh, that he bumps into. And uh, the sources are now gone. They now can access uh, the temple, if they so choose. So that's a positive. And uh, it just, you know, it's it's movement from the realm of death and impurity into into life and, and holiness. So as you looked at the Gospels through the lens of impurity, what sorts of things started to suddenly make sense? Because uh, as I was reading your book, I was, you know, it's, it's like things were falling into place uh, about uh, names of Jesus, you know, that Mark has and um, the names of demonic forces, you know, just talk about some of the things that started to fall into place for you. Yeah. I mean, all, all of this really sprung out of, of reading, just sort of systematically reading Jacob Milgram's stuff on Leviticus and, you know, realizing, hold on a second, this, this stuff is happening in the gospels and it helps make sense of a lot of the language of the whole new Testament, uh, lots of parts of the new Testament, but with relation to the gospels, you get, you know, the first thing when Jesus, Jesus' first sort of deed of power in, in Mark or first miracle in Mark is this exorcism in the synagogue on a Sabbath. And the, the demon is, is described by Mark as an impure pneuma, an unclean or impure spirit. Uh, so you get this language of impurity and this impure spirit says to Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So you get this language of impurity and holiness, these two things that, that, uh, Milgram has said are forces, active forces in priestly thinking in Leviticus. Well, now you have them personified. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a recipe for electrocution, right? Like the impurity and the holiness. So something's going to, something's going to Something happen. Something is going to give. Yeah. And who's the more powerful force, this impure pneuma who's, who's, you know, uh, dominating this man or Jesus, the Holy one of God, uh, which, you know, just even in the last week or, or two, I've begun to think more and more that this language, the Holy One of God, is really playing off uh, the language of, of Leviticus and other texts, talking about the the code Hakodesh, the the sanctuary, the holy space. But now the holy space is mobile, and that power is out there in doing different things in Jesus, according to the gospel writers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Jesus comes into confrontation with this holy pneuma and 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 
what happens? I mean, how does how does this sort of purity system then help you make sense of what happens then? The, the stronger force is going to win. So when you have holy blood in contact with ritual impurity, as long as the blood is strong enough, and you have different strengths of, of blood, this ritual detergent, an ox's blood is required within the most holy uh, place in the tabernacle or temple to wash out the deepest stains. Um, as long as the holy power is stronger, it's going to win. So the Holy One of God in Mark 1 uh, ends up removing this demonic impure force from the man. And of course, you see that with ritual impurities. You have Jesus in Mark 2 talking about removing moral impurities, forgiving sins. Massive claims that only make sense if if uh, one understands what the Holy One of God signifies. Yeah, so, yeah, I was reminded there of a, a couple of scenes from the Old Testament of Isaiah 6, where there you have, I mean, and one of the repeated names for God in Isaiah is the Holy One of Israel. Um, and and there you have Isaiah coming into confrontation, realizing w- with the Holy One of Israel, realizing his uncleanness. And then it's God's sort of movement toward him via this coal carried by the seraphim that purifies him. You know, so it's like that movement out. Ezekiel, where you have the the water coming out from the temple and sort of flowing outward and bringing uh, renewal and purification. So are some of these ideas, do you think, behind the portrait of Jesus? Is this a Christological are there Christological implications to this depiction of him as the Holy One of God? Yeah. Uh, so, A, I think definitely the gospel writers aren't, you know, they're not making up something new on some level. Uh, again, the God of the Old Testament has been doing these purifying deeds before, whether it's through people like Elijah and Elisha, who, uh, well, remove lepra in one case and raise the dead or apparently dead twice and save lives in general uh, in, a, in a couple of ways. So, and they're not doing that, of course, in their own power. This is divinely empowered uh, prophet action here. That Isaiah 6 example is fantastic. This is a mortal who's been brought into the divine presence and is realizing this is uh, dangerous and and God making ways for it to work. So that's definitely part of where the, the gospels are drawing some of their thinking. And of course, this larger sort of eschatological hope that God would change the state of, of the cosmos and not let death and impurity rule any longer. And now the gospel writers are saying all those hopes that we see in so many different ways in the Old Testament, they're coming to fruition in, in the person of Jesus, which you're right, raises all kinds of questions Christologically. Is he just a, a powerful man like Elijah and Elisha? Is he more than that? And I think this is, so this for me is ultimately where I didn't, I didn't focus on this a whole lot in the book. My whole point was to try to show, you know, relation of, of the gospels, Jesus to the Jewish law, but it raises all kinds of questions about Jesus's identity. And that's the sticking point to my mind. It's not, oh, Jesus abandons the law. This is what's so different about Judaism and Christianity or Judaism and the gospels. It's this claim that the gospel writers are making in a in narrative form that Jesus embodies the holy God of Israel in a way uh, that's not entirely without precedent, but is partially without precedent. Jesus doesn't generally pray uh, for God to do something through him. We don't hear him saying, God, help me remove this lepra. Uh, that's 
that's not what we see. So what does it say about Jesus' identity? Uh, probably something pretty controversial to a lot of people. Yeah. And, and, and typically Mark in elusive fashion, you know, it, it, it's like Mark where you focused a lot of your work, um, kind of opens those questions maybe without handing you the answers. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm open. I'm, I'm comfortable thinking that Mark doesn't have all the answers himself. He's, he's, he's trying to reach for answers. Um, but, you know, he doesn't have all his Trinitarian uh, T's crossed and I's dotted, but you can see how someone can, can read texts like Mark and others and start moving in those directions because it's, it may not be explicit, but it's uh, evocative of, of such thinking, I think. We haven't talked about your journey into biblical studies. What, what got you sort of interested in studying New Testament and studying early Judaism and, you know, onto the pathway of reading Milgram. Uh, not a lot of New Testament scholars read Milgram in depth, you know, so what, what was your journey? Oh, I mean, I could tell you a lot of different possibilities, but I was a science major to start and was really looking forward to getting rich in the medical profession. And, and my first year of university, all of a sudden I was not going to any of my classes except my philosophy class. Um, and I realized I'm definitely not going to be happy in life if I keep going this way. So I got really interested in, in questions about religion. I mean, I, I was raised within the Christian tradition, but I, I never really thought about a career thinking about these things until university. And so that got me into theological and biblical studies, religious studies. Uh, and, and, you know, pretty quickly, you know, I, I, I take a shot, I guess, at some on some level at, at Tom Wright. Uh in the intro to the book, but it's it's not meant to be a you know complete takedown or anything. Uh, a lot of his work got me in, early on got me interested in thinking about Jewish texts outside of you know traditional canons and thinking about Judaism. Realizing that a lot of the ways that that Christians have talked about Judaism has been uh, insidious, unfair, uh, incorrect, historically incorrect, and so that really got me going down this path. And, you know, I kept trying to do New Testament projects that ended up forcing me to do Old Testament work in ways that, you know, maybe were a little presumptuous, but really trying to do that. So that's sort of what got me into Milgram and others eventually. That's great. Um, I want to switch gears and do a speed round with you. So uh, these are just quick fire questions and answers. So uh, how many hours of sleep do you need? Uh, seven. Okay. Uh, do you have any friends taller than six foot five? Yes. Okay. And a brother-in-law who's six seven. Okay. All right. You. you uh... Not that he's not a friend. He's a friend too. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Greg, if you're listening, we're friends. Important clarification. What's this, <laughs> What's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last fifty years? Oh my gosh, that's really hard. Um, I mean, Ed Sanders, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, I think has changed so much. Yeah. Um, what's, what book in biblical studies would you have said is the most significant 15 years ago? <laughs> uh, yeah, probably Sanders, Paul and okay. Palestinian Judaism. All right. Yep. Uh, do you have a favorite novel? Ooh, uh, one of my most, uh, well, not, I guess it's a couple years old now. Uh, Richard Powers, The Overstory is phenomenal. And it's about, it's about trees. Yeah. yeah. And now I'm obsessed with trees. Oh, wow. Tell me about that. I, I, uh, you know, I read half of that this summer. And, and it, it, I'd say it didn't pull me in. Um, really? Yeah. Oh. Uh, and I, I appreciate and enjoy trees. Um, I, I have other books I, I like in that genre. But um, t tell me about, like, your fascination with trees. You know, 
uh, this this book, I'm reading it, starting off, and it starts with with stories of different trees on on some level, and I'm like, what is this? This is the weirdest thing ever. Yeah, the American chestnut and, story was fantastic. That was yeah, very yeah, very interesting. And, and yeah. it sort of just sort of pulled me in, and then I I actually kept expecting the book to to really personify trees within the narrative and really explicit in weird ways that it, it didn't quite get where I thought it was going to go, but it was just this really interesting take on the dynamics uh, of life shared between vegetation and humans and something that, you know, I love hiking. I love trees, but I don't sit around and like think a whole lot about trees, but trees are absolutely fascinating. So I don't know if you've read, um, what is it? The hidden life, hidden life of trees, secret life yeah, of I've trees. Read that. Yeah. It's, it's a lovely book. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones in that genre. There's a new book that came out on Douglas Firs um, that I looked at. But I, but yeah, there, there does seem to be this whole movement in looking at communication between trees. And that, that's a fascinating area. Um, you know, are they even individual organisms? Should we think of a forest as an organism? If like a brain, does it, it seems to work like a brain. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. Um, Cool. Uh, what's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? <laughs> um, you know, I think we're still struggling with this sort of Judaism-Hellenism divide in weird ways. And that's sort of one thing I tried to tackle in the book, that purity concerns are, are just ubiquitous in the ancient world. But it's with, with so many different things. I think trying to protect, I think it's intentional sometimes and not other times, this idea that Judaism or Israelite religion or the New Testament is somehow sheltered from the pagan world around it, I think is, um, I don't think it's helpful. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's that interesting actually, but it's not historically helpful. Uh, how do you solve a problem like Maria? <laughs> you don't watch Sound of Music. Okay. Uh, um, right, now I have a few questions that derive from your Twitter feed. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> all right. You got it. And this is, this is you trying to remember your own quote, which I thought was insightful. Um, finish this phrase. Science can tell me if my hair is long enough for a man bun. But only humanities can tell me if I should have a man bun. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and, and you, I think, I think that's, that's helpful. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and, a, and a good case for the humanities as well. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you said top three signs on middle aged favorite oh. day of the week is garbage day. Yeah, that's um, today. I just I just got the garbage out this morning. Well done. Did you experience feels, some real satisfaction? It feels great to see those empty containers. Yeah. <laughs> favorite time of day is bedtime. Yeah. Uh, and so your, far away. Your favorite reach, recent purchase is a weekly pill organizer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've been really trying to get serious about you know vitamins and stuff. Yeah. I don't know how I don't know how good they are. But, but you I don't want to OD on those. Don't want to OD, yeah. and I I actually found that if I don't have the pill ball, yeah. pill weekly dispenser, yeah. I I go two weeks and I can't remember if I've taken a pill. All right, what's your issue with the Gospel of John? Because you wrote scholars of the Gospel of John. What can you pinpoint the precise moment when one single poor decision led you into this field? So what? Yeah, what's your issue? Yeah, I mean, so there's the sort of large issue that looms, especially for someone interested in sort of Jewish Christian dialogue. The the very exceed exceedingly negative depiction of uh, the Jews in John is, is a tough one for me to, to work through and read. That's one thing, but it's also, uh, you know, when you read through John's gospel and you have these, these large sections of Jesus talking, I feel like 
and I don't think I'm alone. I think it's just hard for us to admit. When you read one of these these long uh, statements, it seems often relatively contradictory or like you don't even know what the point is at the end of it. It's kind of like, feels like some of the, the most difficult sermons to parse uh, or something. And it, it is a circular form of reasoning. There's something else, there's something else going on there. And, you know, people who work on John, I'm, I'm glad they do. Uh, I, I don't think I ever will, but uh, yeah. I'll right, stick so, with the synoptics. So here's here's my New Testament quiz for you. Uh, okay. It's more about preferences. So shorter, okay. shorter or longer ending a mark? Shorter. Shorter. Okay. Yep. Uh, are you a revelation or a revelations kind of guy? <laughs> no one's a revelations kind of guy. Well, I not mean, in biblical studies. Yeah. Maybe you could you could market yourself as one. Okay. Uh, are you a one Corinthians or a first Corinthians? That's type really person? funny. Uh, I think I've gone back and forth. I, someone once told me that it might be a bit of a uh, a British-American divide. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, and Canada's yeah, caught so in the middle. Yeah, I think that that's exactly me. So I know when you know when Trump got raked over the coals over this, yeah. I was like, oh, shoot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Brits say one Corinthians. Yeah. 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 Um, baptism for the dead. Uh, are, are you, are you uh, an advocate of that or not so much? I have never baptized anyone for the dead. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you don't take first I've Corinthians also never baptized seriously? Anyone, so. Okay. What's that? So no. you don't take first Corinthians <laughs> seriously? One Corinthians I do not take seriously. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Oh. Um, so I want to, uh, one thing I do is I do a random word generator and then I, I plug that word into Google, uh, into Amazon books. And then I want you to give the book an endorsement uh, or a five-star rating, one-star, whatever you think it should deserve. So the word that came up with co- was conscious. And then the book was called Conscious Leadership, Elevating Humanity Through Business by John Mackey. So how many stars do you give it? One is as low as I can go? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one. One star, really. Is yeah, the, is one the, star. Uh, you know, it's the CEO of Whole Foods. Huh. Who wrote it. But you don't okay. believe in elevation of humanity through business? <laughs> Not through business, no. Okay. Um, all right, great. Let's switch back to the, the book. Uh, that was helpful. Okay, good. All right. Um, so one of, one of the stories that came to mind that as, you know, is often a sort of counter-argument to the idea that Jesus might be compatible with systems of impurity is a good Samaritan. So there you have a pretty negative depiction of the priest and a Levite, and the Samaritan who's willing to go to this guy who, you know, could be a corpse, uh, is bloodied on the side of the road. How does your study shed light or address that potential reading of the story? I should first say I've learned a lot from Richard Balkum on this on this uh, story. I think it's, I mean, it's clearly a, a legal argument and concern here about... Um, how do you rightly order or, or make a hierarchy out of different legal precepts? And this is one of the this is probably going to happen to nobody in their in their life or very rarely in their life. What do you do if uh, you are concerned or need to be concerned about ritual purity, or have a dead body on the ground, potential dead body on the ground? What do you do? How do you prioritize different aspects of the law? Um, and I think Jesus isn't telling a story here that everybody would have been shocked about in the sense of, well, why is he condemning the priest and the Levite? They, they shouldn't have gone anywhere near the corpse. Uh, I think all the information we have now, admittedly, it's all later 
than the Gospels. It's, it's uh, early rabbinic literature would suggest that if you think you see a dead corpse on the side of the road, it's an abandoned corpse, it is your legal duty, it takes precedence over pretty much everything that you tend to that body. And so this is precisely what Jesus is saying. The priest and the Levite didn't do what they knew they should have done. And what we all agree they should have done is check to see if the man was alive, save his life if he is, and if he's dead, bury him as is appropriate in a deed of compassion. Uh, now the surprise is that it's a Samaritan who's, you know, generally there's some animosity between Jews and Samaritans, but he turns out to be the one who obeys the law properly. It's actually obeying the law. Uh, the love of neighbor is from Leviticus. Uh, this is, you know, the priestly writer talking, or I guess the H holiness code, um, whatever, if that matters, but it's priestly literature who actually requires love of neighbor. And in this way, it's in this case, it's shown by tending to someone who's either dead or almost dead. So uh, it's not abandon the law, love versus law. It's the law requires love. And this is what it looks like in this case. You know, your depiction there uh, of the hierarchy, it, it reminds me of some misreadings of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, because one standard, even scholarly portrait, is that you have on the one hand priestly concerns, and then on the other hand, prophetic concerns. And the prophets began, this is the narrative, that they began to see the relative shortcomings of the sacrificial system and said that what God really wants is mercy and not sacrifice. He wants a broken heart and not burnt offerings. And so, rather than seeing him as relative prioritizing, they see it's there's a misreading that the prophets sort of set themselves against the sacrificial system, and Jesus then comes in that tradition. Yeah, it doesn't have to be an either-or, obviously, uh, in that sort of verses is uh, an interesting interpretation when it's, it is, it's just uh, where we have to prioritize one thing over another at times. And, and when that's the case, this is how you prioritize. And so, you know, and how many, how many of these prophets were priestly figures anyways? Uh, you'd know this better than me, but Ezekiel, of course, comes to mind. Uh, this is a priestly prophet. He still cares. So, and he still has this prophetic critique of priests as you're not getting it right. So, um, critique doesn't mean dismissal and rejection. Critique, I would suggest, means this is really, this is important enough that we need to spend time on this and you know, attend to how to do this right. So, one reading of Jesus then that you seem to be advocating is that he's within a conversation already happening within first century Judaism about the nature of prioritizing and the importance of that. Um, why did the gospel writers not show the group that he is aligning himself with too much? You know, so so if there were these differing, so this is about the portrait of Jesus, not necessarily existence of different views within Judaism. Why are they consistently setting him against, in these narratives, the Pharisees and religious leaders? So I do think in part that that polemic, the rhetoric is there in its not always, but almost always with the Pharisees, in, in part because of how much they share in common. And it's that commonality which requires, you know, heightened polemic to set up distinctions. Uh, I mean, I think there are some, the Pharisees never, they don't seem to criticize Jesus with regard to, you know, lepra or the woman with the genital hemorrhage or corpses. 
Now, maybe those stories, that's not the point of them. But, uh, you know, the criticisms, forgiveness of sins is, is, a, is a quite unique one. But I do think Jesus's emphasis in, in, in uh, how Christians have traditionally read Jesus emphasizing love of, of neighbor and love of enemy fits really well with what we see in later rabbinic literature around, uh, you know, one of the leading principles of rabbinic uh, halakha is pikuach nefesh, the preservation of life. And so it would have been really nice had the Gospels used that, you know, sort of exact, well, similar phrase in Greek, but I think that's essentially, functionally, what love of neighbor is. And so, yeah, I think the the polemic there is, uh, it's there to set up distinctions that are between two relatively close groups. Um, and sometimes, the, sometimes, you know, I think there are texts where you read the story and it's... Uh, We've read it as this harsh, you know, angry, yelling at each other kind of thing. And the Greek doesn't require it and maybe suggests quite otherwise, that it's actually the Pharisees coming to Jesus saying, hey, we're really intrigued about this. Why are you doing this? What's your legal reasoning? Not, hey, why are you doing that? Um, But tell us, tell us more. We want to understand your rationale here. So I think there's, there are times where we can at least read it that way. Not all times, but sometimes. And how does this play out? Uh, in terms of the Sabbath. So that's, that's one more area that you touch on it, that, you know, it's, um, I've even heard Christians say that Jesus was a Sabbath breaker and that, again, like these are overly legalistic rules that people had set up and Jesus is like, no, it's not about rules. It's about relationships. So <laughs> uh, the, how do you understand Jesus' relationship to the Sabbath and how does purity help you? So the only thing Jesus ever does on a Sabbath that comes in for criticism, Jesus himself, uh, is heal people, first of all. Now, there's another story, and I think this is, this, ex- and it's the first story, in Mark at least, about Sabbath. And it helps explain, or Sabbath criticism, it helps explain Jesus' rationale. It's when his disciples pluck grain on the Sabbath, when they're going through these fields. And it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in different ways. Matthew's the most sort of fulsome when it comes to like legal argument. And Jesus's argument is, hold on, we know there's certain work that happens on the Sabbath and it's not actually law-breaking. Priests do work on the Sabbath. So we know there's a case where it can happen. And the rationale behind that is the temple is more important than the Sabbath. So again, it's about prioritizing laws. Temple's more important than Sabbath. And Jesus then goes on in Matthew to say something greater than the Sabbath is here. So that's a Christological claim. Who's Jesus? Is he more important than the temple? And if so, then by already agreed upon legal rationale, he's more important than the Sabbath. And so it's not so much, again, dismissing the Sabbath. Not that, you know, we have, we don't really have any evidence of Jews finding it like a really hard thing to do. There, there were people who didn't observe it and maybe because they wanted to make more money, but the whole point is rest. And it's not something that we should view as legalistic, I think. And Jesus is just saying the Sabbath is, is meant for life. It's meant for humans, which is again, something later rabbis will argue. And again, if, if someone's life is in danger in later rabbinic literature, uh, you do whatever you can on the Sabbath. You don't, you don't sit there. You work. If uh, someone's house falls down on the Sabbath, you start digging um, because their life takes precedence over the Sabbath. And the argument that the rabbis later make is because the Sabbath was given 
to you, not you to the Sabbath, which is based on um, Exodus. And sort of like Jesus saying, the Sabbath is for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath is what he says. So there's a, a again, it's a legal, it's actually a legal argument. Jesus is like a, a legal list in a, in a positive sense. Yeah. Um, you, you deal in the book with uh, the, the verse, uh, we'll leave it to the side now of um, Jesus declaring all foods clean, because I think that's an important part of your discussion. Uh, but I was curious to know um, where your thinking is going now. Um, so you've looked at purity in the synoptic gospels. Uh, how, do, how does this, as you turn that spotlight in other places in the New Testament, what what is illuminated? Uh, a few things. I think I, mean, I think all this understanding Leviticus better helps us understand a, a text like uh, Hebrews a lot better. Obviously, this is so focused on the tabernacle and sacrifice and Jesus's uh, atonement that it's really, really helpful there. Uh, I don't know that I'm going to work on that a whole lot anytime soon, but you know, a lot of scholars are. Um, and I think it helps think about Paul's letters in, in, in unique and interesting ways. And one of the, one of the weirdest ways is, you know, Paul's claim that those who are in Christ are now uh, their bodies collectively and individually are these temples of the Holy spirit to say that is to say, is to, is to suggest these things are uh, locations of holy power that is not always, again, not always safe. It's a good thing, but it's also, there's a certain inherent danger. And so Paul's own thinking about what does it look like to in, be inhabited by uh, this divine holiness for your lives as mortal flesh and blood people, I think is really fascinating and not easy. Yeah. So. Well, I'd be really curious uh, for you to take that, those, uh, um, steps in your in your research because I, th- I think a sort of New Testament wide study through this lens would be would be fascinating. So that that's yeah. my uh, that's my challenge to you. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'll get right on that. Um, and, and you say at the end of your, or actually, is at the beginning uh, that you have a, a sort of larger goal, uh, and that is to provide or help provide foundations for Christians seeking to retain their theological conviction in the importance of the Old Testament. So as you've taught on this, how is that, how have you seen that happen for people? Yeah, I think uh, helping people understand sort of what, what motivates a text like Leviticus and the, the actual sort of theological concerns. They're not just, you know, empty superstitions there's a logic in a, in a theology behind this. I think has helped, you know, people get a better sense of, again, it's not just, they're not just seeing, oh, Leviticus, okay, it isn't completely weird. Uh, but it also is helping them see, you know, things in the New Testament. And, and I think that real focus on, the, on uh, holiness in life, destroying, ultimately destroying death is something that coincides quite nicely with, with some aspects of Christian theology. Yeah. Well, Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to speak today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Matt. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.